brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to the Penguin podcast where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Nihal Arthanaika and today I'm speaking to an extraordinary writer whose output spans more than 70 books, among them the best-selling series Noughts and Crosses and Pig Heart Boy, which looks at the personal and societal challenges at the cutting edge of science. She's a former children's laureate and received an OBE in 2008 for her services to children's literature. Her work has been adapted for stage and screen, including a BBC adaptation of Noughts and Crosses, which involved a collaboration with Jay-Z. His company, Rock Nation, produced the soundtrack. Her latest book, which we're talking about today, is an autobiography, which is funny, frank and full of life lessons. She is, of course, an incredible storyteller, an inspirational figure, and I'm so pleased to be able to talk to, not for the first time, I'm happy to say, Mallory Blackman. Welcome to the Penguin Podcast, Mallory. Hi, Nihal. How are you? Good. It's lovely to see you. Um, When embarking on this, if there was trepidation, where do you think that trepidation was coming from? I think um, there was definitely trepidation. And I think it was coming from the fact that it wasn't me kind of hiding behind characters that I created because it was it was all about me so it was it's very exposing if you like it's and and but at the same time I kind of wanted to speak my truth I felt it was time to kind of just talk about my journey to this point as a writer and as a person um so it felt like a good time to take stock but it there was definite trepidation there was doubts about whether I should be doing this or not there were doubts about kind of you know how it'd be received but I thought you know what I'm just going to be as truthful as I can in the telling and, and and go for it. How does the curatorial process of it change, Mallory, from when you start doing it, thinking, right, I'm going to curate my life for strangers to read. But as you get more into it, does that curation change? Not as much as you might think, actually, because I had a kind of clear plan as to what I wanted to include. But that said, there were parts that surprised me in how much they affected me when I was writing it because to write it effectively, I had to relive certain moments of my life and I had to be in that moment again. And I found that incredibly challenging, especially, you know, if it was something quite traumatic, it was very challenging to kind of have to to revisit that, to, to, to be able to write it truthfully. So a Japanese phrase, which I'm going to mispronounce, right? Nanakarobi ya oki. What does that mean to you? Yeah, that's something I stumbled across on the internet and I thought it suited what I was writing at the time. And it was um, basically, it's if you get knocked down seven times, you get up eight. It's, it's, it speaks to perseverance and tenacity and just never giving up. And, that, and that's always been my philosophy in terms of, you know, when I was getting all the rejection letters for when I, when I was sending out my work to various publishers or... You know, when I had a, a, a careers teacher telling me that, you know, black people didn't become teachers and, and so on. So it, all those knockbacks, everyone, everyone at some point suffers knockbacks. What, it's how you deal with them that counts. And I think that saying speaks to just persevering and keeping and, and, and that thing to keep going. Whatever happens, just try and get up again and try and get up again. And sometimes it's really hard 
And sometimes it feels like, you know, nothing's going to work and you're never going to overcome. But but the, the definite way to not overcome is to not do, is to not try. So my thing was always... Okay, I'm going to go for it. I, I'm going to I'm going to try another book. I'm going to try another story. I'm going to try another publisher. I'm going to do another course to improve my writing skills and so on. So, in terms of my writing, it was always about moving forward. Always trying to make sure the momentum was forward. Of all the barriers that you see in your past, because now they're written down, they're catalogued. Which are the ones from the distance that you now have from them do you feel was the most difficult to overcome? Uh, My miscarriages, especially my second one. That was something that kind of lived with me for a long time every day and and having to deal with that um, took longer than I thought it would. And, you know, and just, and it was, obviously it was a bereavement and it was something that, was outside of my control it took me a long time to kind of get over and it's not even as if you kind of really get over I guess you just you carry on and I mean I was very lucky because then I had my daughter after my second miscarriage but I I kind of feel that that was kind of probably the lowest moment of my life definitely there's still so much of a taboo around miscarriage isn't there oh there absolutely is I think it's one of those subjects that nobody ever broaches it's one of those things where nobody knows how to respond to it. If you hear someone's had a miscarriage, unless you've been through it yourself, it's very hard to know what to say. It's the same as kind of any kind of bereavement. Sometimes you can you struggle to know what's the best thing to say. Even the fact that in the UK, black women are four times more likely to die in childbirth than white women. And I think that, again, that's something that it's sometimes put out as a statistic and then there's never any talk about okay, what do we do to address this? What do we do to improve the situation? And I think the only way you do that, the first way to to do that is to admit there's a problem. And the second way then is to discuss it and talk about it and and come up with strategies for improving the situation. So I feel just because we don't feel comfortable talking about it doesn't mean it shouldn't be addressed. I wonder how people, Mallory, who try to argue there's no such thing as structural racism how they managed to equate that sentence with the statistic that you just put out about black women and childbirth. Because you talk about in the book, creative spaces are fraught, hospital care is fraught, the education system is fraught, and you have a very clear example of how that worked for you, and the workplace is fraught. How do you think they justify the idea that we're making this stuff up? Mm. this thing of when certain people are made to feel uncomfortable, they will lash out and tell you that it didn't happen or you're exaggerating or you're race baiting or it was an isolated incident. And, you know, and how many hundreds of thousands of incidents does it take before it's not isolated anymore? I remember once, for example, I tweeted a conversation I'd had where I was doing an event and I turned up early and I was watching as, you know, people were kind of just ushered into the, the, the room where I was supposed to do the talk. And I was just having a peppermint tea at a table watching people go in. And they were and there were two women at the door waving everybody in, smiling to them, chatting to them and so forth. And then I th- it was like five minutes left. And I thought, right, I better go down and do my event. 
So I went to the two doors where these women were standing guard and they insisted in see, on seeing my ticket. And I said, well, excuse me, I, I need to get down there. And they said, well, where's your ticket? And I said, well, I don't have a ticket. And they said, well, you can't come in then. It's sold out. And they hadn't checked any other person's ticket as I'd been watching. They were just waved down. They, they just said, oh, we're here for an event with Mallory Blackman. And they were waved down with a smile. And as soon as I turned up and they said, oh, they, where's your ticket? Where's your ticket? I said, I don't have a ticket. So they said, well, I'm sorry, you can't come in without a ticket. And it sold out. And I said, well, if I, if I leave, then so does everybody else because I'm Mallory Blackman and it's my event. And their face is kind of whooshed red. And they said, oh, I'm so sorry. And then they let me down. But I kind of thought, well, you know what? Isn't that interesting how everybody else gets waved in? Nobody gets asked for a ticket except me. And for the first 10, 15 minutes of the event, I was fuming. So my, I wasn't actually concentrating on what I was being asked because I was so angry. And I just thought, you know, and so it's an example. I mean, and, and you go to any person of color, they will have examples of similar where you know you can see you're being treated differently to your white counterparts or colleagues or whatever. So, but there are always going to be deniers who don't want to address that and who will always make excuses for it or tell you you're mistaken. So I, because I tweeted that event and I had so many people, to, I mean, there were many, many people telling me that's shocking and that's awful and that's, that's appalling, et cetera. But I had other people telling me I was mistaken or I was lying or, you know, or it's, I couldn't expect the two women to know who I was or whatever. And I thought it's not about the two women knowing who I was. It was about how the two women had treated everybody else who was white, who was going into the event, and then how they treated me. So it is this thing of, you know, it, you have to just keep speaking your truth because what they're trying to do is just suppress your voice. And what they're trying to do is say, well, this may happen to you, but don't speak about it because it makes me uncomfortable. So you have to call it out every time it happens to you and say, this is happening to me. This is happening to me. And speak out. That's the only way things are going to get changed. But unfortunately, as I said, you know, you're always going to have people who are going to say you're race baiting or it didn't happen or whatever. And you just have to go around them and just speak out and just say this is not acceptable behavior. You write in the book, actually, their anger feeds me. Mm. Is that something from the younger Mallory Blackman or is that still you? Is that still you? I think it's probably still me because I think um, if I write a book and people get angry or adults get angry about it and I know I'm doing something right, you know, so so if it was kind of like if they get upset and say, oh, this is not for young adults and you should be broaching this subject, which I've had from adults. You know, I wrote uh, Boys Don't Cry about two brothers and one of them happens to be gay. And um, I was doing a talk and there was a, a older black guy in the audience. And when I was talking about the plot and talking about there's this gay black guy in it and he's out and proud and whatever, this black man was staring holes through me and he was shifting and he was tutting and huffing and he was not happy. And as soon as I finished my talk, he got up and walked out because he did not like me having a black gay character in one of my books. When I wrote Pig Heart Boy, I had another adult berating me for um, writing a story about a boy facing his own mortality. And he knows he's going to die if he doesn't get a heart transplant. He probably won't see his next birthday. But he knows this. His family are tiptoeing around him, but he knows this. And I kind of felt that in the telling of all my stories, what I try and do most of all, I, even though they're called fiction, the point is you have to be truthful in the telling of them. Because otherwise people are going to read them and say, well, I don't believe a word of this. I don't believe this character. I don't believe what they're going through. You have to be truthful and honest in the emotions that your characters are going through. And you have to be truthful and you have to be honest in 
presenting that warts and all. And for some people, that makes them deeply uncomfortable. But I think if a child or a young adult can go through something, it's a legitimate thing to write about. And I've always maintained that. So I'm not going to change that now. No, nor should you. Um, As a person of colour in a country that's 85% white, the sense of being an outsider is something that's imposed upon you by some. But what happens when you also feel like a, an outsider or indeed those within your community think of you as an outsider? I've always felt I have to find my own place and space. It's not for someone to hand it to me. It's for me to decide where I am, where I belong, who I am, and not let others try and take that away from me. And so I've always been a misfit one way or another. I've always looked at the world slightly differently to other people. And it took me too long, too long to embrace that rather than thinking I was in some way deficient. And it's that difference I feel is actually fed into and helped by writing because I have a different way of describing things and looking at things and so on. So I kind of feel that, you know, for all every, anybody out there who may be neurodivergent or feel that kind of they, they don't quite fit in uh, or they, ha- they dress differently, they look differently, they talk differently, whatever, embrace it, embrace it, embrace what makes you different. I mean, we should, I think we need to do more sort of celebrating our, our similarities, but also celebrating our differences rather than being afraid of them. So, as I said, it took me far too long to embrace mine, but I absolutely do now. I mean, I, you know, my family say, you're, you were always weird. And I, you know, and then I just smile when they, whenever they say that, I smile because I have no problem with that whatsoever. You know, you pass your 11 plus and you get a choice of grammar schools and you pick the one because it's pretty. On a oak, right? There's trees in it. <laughs> yeah, the name. That, that, yeah, the name that, was can, pretty. You can I visualize that. that. You can, <laughs> yeah, right. You can visualize on a oak grammar school. But I was intrigued by a conversation you overheard your dad having with your siblings, and you come down in the middle of the night, I think, and he uses this word to describe what he thinks you've become. Can you just tell us about that and why that had such an effect on you? Yeah. He reckoned I was turning into a real snob because I got into a grammar school. And I was so hurt because I, I, I remember being very careful to make sure I didn't change my behavior so no one could accuse me of that. And there was my own dad saying it. I was upset and I, I eventually told my mum why I was upset because of what my dad had said. And she then confronted him and said, that's, that's not a nice thing to say about your daughter. And he denied it and he denied it to my face. I look back now and I think, well, okay, that's him kind of being called out and then and getting upset about the fact that he was called out about it. But at the time, I think it was that moment where I felt, okay, you're, you can't be trusted because you lied to me because I know you're lying because I heard you. And it's one of those moments where your, your father then is no longer invincible and, you know, all-knowing and all-seeing and whatever and will be always in your corner or whatever. For me, it felt like the moment where... I grew up and I realized that, okay, my father is, is just is a human being, I guess, rather than some superhero that I'd always considered him before that. Um, what did a teacher say to you, a careers advisor, when you said you wanted to go to university? 
Yes, I, I said I wanted to be, and she asked me what I wanted to do after my A-levels, and I had it worked out, and I said, I want to go to Goldsmiths College, and I want to do an English and drama degree, and I want to be a teacher. And she looked at me, and she said, black people don't become teachers. She said, why don't you be a secretary instead? And I was so shocked, and uh, there was that moment of staring at her, sort of, you know, jaw dropping, and feeling, what? What did she just say? And then she saw my face and then she said, and besides, I don't think you're going to get your English A-level, despite the fact I've never failed an English exam in my life. You know, and I said, well, I don't want to be a secretary. I want to be an English teacher. And she said, well, that's not going to happen. And then she said, I'll tell you what, she said, why don't you do something like business studies at Polytechnic? And so that was the only thing she would give me a reference for. And so in the end, I kind of gave in and said, well, okay, I'll, I'll do that then, knowing before I went that it would be a mistake, which it was. But that was the only thing she would give me a reference for. As far as she was concerned, black people had no place in uni. And so it was only the following year when I had my A-level results that I applied to Goldsmiths off my own back because I could then get a, a reference from another teacher. And I got in. And then, you know, I, and I, I ended up working for a year. I deferred entry for a year to make some money. And I joined a software house. And then I gave up my place and stayed in computing for, for nine years. So I never got to Goldsmiths. But that said, it, you know, the, but the whole experience really taught me something because it taught me there was that teacher telling me that university was not for me as a black person. And then the following year I got in. Now, the fact that I didn't actually go is is not as relevant to this point because I kind of feel like what it taught me was if I want something and someone's telling me no or trying to block me, find a way to go around them. There's always a way around them. It might take longer but but never let someone's kind of stop me because, you know, someone who's in my face saying that's not for you, that's not for you. Never let them stop me. And so that lesson actually stood me in good stead when I was getting all my rejection letters, because when I got all, was getting all the rejection letters, I thought, I want to do this. And if they're saying no, then I'll just find another publisher who'll say yes, or I'll find another editor who'll say yes, or I'll write a different story that they'll say yes to, because I'd already had that lesson from my careers teacher which was, you know, if, if she's saying no, I can find a way to go around her. So I kind of think she actually taught, you know, she it was one of those life lessons which stood me in good stead later. I mean, before you'd heard the Japanese phrase, Nanakorobi Yaoki, who taught you that? Where does that come from? Does it come from someone sitting down and saying, this is the way it is? Because in the book, you know, your dad said, you'll have to work twice as hard for half the reward, right? Mm. That's just a given. Yeah. Or, or is it a series of experiences? I think it, it was more the experiences and it was also the uh, the example that my mum set. And my mum taught me resilience and perseverance and it was my mum who was out every day, you know, looking for a job and not taking no for an answer, which is not to say that, you know, there are so many people out there who are working two and three jobs and are still struggling. And so that's not to say that, you know, I'm, I'm not by any means saying, oh, if you work hard enough, you'll find your way out of poverty. It doesn't work that way. I think most immigrants are taught that if you don't have deep pockets, the way up and the way out is via education and getting a good job at the end of it. So when I was in computing, I had a really good job. But then when I told my mum that I wanted to give it up and become a writer, she thought I'd lost my marbles. Um you're a teenager in the mid 70s there's national front graffiti skinheads on the streets 
And while there may not be National Front graffiti in that format, or indeed you'll see skinheads on the streets of the UK, do you see any parallels with some of the discourse around people of colour and what you experienced as a teenager? Do you see that today? Oh, absolutely. I mean, hate crimes are on the rise. No one can deny that. That's official statistics. I think some of the rhetoric we're getting from certain politicians is absolutely what the the hateful rhetoric we had in the 70s and 80s from these various groups. But unfortunately, now it's coming from those in official positions. And, you know, and then it gives rise to other people feeling they can speak in a similar or the same manner. I mean, for example, the way that, you know, Boris Johnson described black people as pickaninnies with watermelon smiles and he was voted prime minister. And, you know, and people like Savella Braverman describing kind of refugees and asylum seekers as invaders. So I absolutely see parallels. I'm not surprised hate crimes are rising because I think some of the rhetoric used by some of those in official positions is unhelpful, to say the least. But I just hope that, you know, future generations will know better. If you were asked to identify progress, what would you say? I would say um, progress in terms of a community and in terms of looking out for each other, I feel is in the hands of our, of the younger generations who are, out there and active about climate change and what we're doing to the planet who are out there and active about uh, and welcoming uh, refugees and asylum seekers and and raising money for them and so on as i said my my hope is for future generations and also i think the hope is also in seeing depictions of other countries and other heritages and other cultures not through a kind of white gaze but through you know, we're having filmmakers from the from other countries actually being able to make their own films and they are available to all, whether it's via YouTube or it's kind of, you know, it's um, the, the internet or wherever. And so what it does is it gives you a kind of more honest perspective less and a less biased perspective of what life is like in other parts of the country. And I think with that information, I hope that the younger generation will be more informed and less ignorant, and by ignorant, I don't mean that in a, in a kind of pejorative way, I mean ignorant in terms of lacking knowledge. And I think it's the lack of knowledge that allows people to then feed you misinformation. I'm hoping the young, younger generation will actually, I mean, we've given them a lot of work to do, I admit it, but I kind of hope that they will actually have more of a clue than perhaps sort of older generations do. I have faith that they will, they will do it, that they will sort of sort out our messes. Pre-social media, pre-the internet, you come across The Colour Purple, written by Alice Walker. Describe to me that feeling of reading The Colour Purple for the first time, Mallory. Oh, wow. It, it, It was revelatory. It was something like... It was like suddenly I've been invisible for so many years and then suddenly I was seen in that here were black characters in a book that I was reading and it was a you know that a book I bought in a bookshop and it it really was this just this feeling of being seen when for so many years for over two decades 
I felt like I had been invisible. And it's so hard to describe because it's it was it was almost like a kind of, you know, you could, I could exhale. And in the same way, and then the, the next book I read after The Colour Purple was The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. And then I devoured all of her work. And then more books, you know, just as many books as I could by black authors. And then reading nonfiction about black pioneers and achievers and inventors that I felt had been denied me throughout my childhood and my teen years. So it really was this sense of, of you know, I, I belong. I, I, you know, I absolutely have a right to, you know, be here. And I suppose up until that moment, it was almost, it felt almost like having to justify my existence on this planet because, you know, having an, a history teacher tell me when I said to her, why do you never talk about black scientists and achievers and inventors? And she said, because there aren't any, Mallory. You know, and and I kind of just feel that, you know, after reading all of these, I kind of felt, you know what? Yes, there are black scientists and achievers and inventors. And yes, there are black novelists and so forth. And then and so it it kind of felt to me like I didn't have to justify my place in this world. Tell me what Alice Walker wrote in your book. You queued up for hours to get her to sign the Temple of My Familiar. What did she write in a book? When I got to the queue, I said to her, would you mind writing Don't Give Up in my book, please? And she said, well, I can't write that. What does that mean? And I said, well, I've had over 60 rejection letters for stories I've been sending out. And she looked at me and she said, and she wagged a finger and said, don't you give up. And she wrote that, don't give up, um, Alice Walker in my book. And it's one of the things I still cherish. I've still got it, you know, it's on my bookcase. Um, and I cherish that because it was, I think it was the encouragement I needed at that time after so many rejection letters for me to keep going. Because, you know, I'm not going to lie, there were one or two times where I thought, am I wasting my time? All these people are saying no. But I really needed, I really needed that encouragement, and it came at just the right time. So I'm really grateful for her. I, well, I'm really grateful to her for writing "Don't Give Up" in my book. Now we asked you, Mallory, to bring a few things to talk to us about, as we always do here on the Penguin Podcast. Starting with something that changed you, and of course, it had to be reading for pleasure, didn't it? Something that changed you. Of course, absolutely. And I think, you know what, I think it was the learning to read. It was reading for pleasure. It was comics, definitely. I loved comics. I still do. I love graphic novels. And I, I think what it was, was just kind of, it opened up my horizons. It, it, it kind of broadened my thinking and my gaze and allowed me to aspire and to know that there was more out there than just what was happening in my life. And I will always be grateful for that. And the fact that I got so much pleasure out of reading from such a young age and, and felt I could lose myself in the books I was reading. Star Trek or Star Wars? Oh, Star Trek. Oh, that's the wrong answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, Star Trek, mate. Sorry. Every day of the week and twice on Sunday. <laughs> that's Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm a trekker, hon. Um, it's like 
and I remember when um, the first Next Generation film came out, and me and my hubby, we had the Star Trek uniforms, and they had uh, uh, they were showing the, all the previous films, um, and the Next Generation one, all in one day. And so we arrived at nine o'clock in the morning, and the Next Generation film was going to finish at eleven o'clock that night, and we we had a marathon run all through them at the Empire in Leicester Square. So it's definitely Star Trek. Oh, without a question, without a question it is. And that really brings me on to, to something you inherited. Uh, because science fiction, I mean, you, you say that it's a love of fairy stories, myths and legends from around the world. But actually, doesn't science fiction play into that as well? I, I think it does. I mean, the thing about myths and legends and fairy stories is that they they tell you that evil absolutely exists but they also tell you that it can be defeated. And that's such an important message. And I, I kind of feel we do our children a disservice and our young adults a disservice by not being honest with them about, you know, there is evil in this world. I'm, that's just a given. But I think what's, what I loved about science fiction is science fiction says, in spite of what we're doing to the planet and each other, we have a future. I think that's part of the reason I love Star Trek. For the time I watched it as a, a young girl and the fact that they had a black woman as a bridge officer and they had a, a, a Japanese guy as a bridge officer and a Russian as a, another bridge officer and so on. And it was so inclusive. And the fact that it wasn't about fighting each other anymore, it was about going out into the stars and exploring. And it wasn't even for military purposes. It was to explore and for the sake of it. And I just thought that was such an such a... A wonderful message and that's why I adored Star Trek and I you know and I love that message so I think you know I that's part of the reason I I love science fiction because it's the fiction of the possible and I and that and that speaks to me okay let's move on to something you should have thrown out well you know um I love getting letters I mean it I love getting letters from people who've read my books and it tends to be more children and teens and I try and answer as many as possible, but I have kept them over the years because some of them have, have moved me to laughter, some have moved me to tears, and I, I just feel very lucky and very blessed that I've had so many wonderful letters over the years. So I haven't chucked them, you know, I've, I've kept them in boxes and things and, you know, and two shelves worth on my one of my bookcases. But um, I, 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 you know, and it's not like I break them out and read them every week or every month or every year even, but I just couldn't bring myself to throw them away. A piece of music that never fails, Mallory, to make you happy. Oh, that's got to be Love Will Find A Way by Lionel Richie. And it's it, he never released it as a single, but I came across it from one of his albums and it is so beautiful. And I love the... You know, it starts like, are you feeling down and lonely, feeling like you can't go on? Just remember, love will find a way. And I just, I love the message in the entire film. It's it's um, it's such a, it's sort of a mellow, mellow kind of groove to it. And it's just, it's just beautiful. It's got beautiful harmonies. And, you know, and every time I'm feeling a bit down, I just play that. And I just think it's, I think it's an amazing song. Um and so that would definitely be the one piece of music that kind of gives me hope. It makes me happy and it gives me hope. Other than writing, what of your pursuits would you say, Mallory, makes time fade away? 
um playing the piano very badly but playing it <laughs> I mean um I I love music and I love kind of you know I haven't broken out my saxophone in years but it was things like you know Grover Washington's just the two of us and the saxophone solo in Baker Street Jerry Rafferty's Baker Street and so on that and and of course you know take five and I all those songs that made me want to play the saxophone in the first place and I love that as an instrument and, you know, I, I love the piano and just sitting down and and kind of tinkering. Um, so I think, you know, I, I kind of get lost in music. I love I love music so much. And I lo- one of life's more bitter tricks, I think, played on me is I love singing. But I, I sing like a rusty crow. So, you know, I, I every time I open my mouth to sing, it's like my family run off into other rooms and things. So for that said, I love it. But, you know, so I kind of. I enjoy singing to myself. I would never dream of singing out loud in front in, in company. But you know, I love singing and I love music and it, and and so it's a big big part of my life, definitely. Maybe it's not the case that you have a terrible voice, Mallory. It's that you haven't found the genre that suits your voice. <laughs> there isn't one. I wish I could say Oh, you are. You're lovely, Nihal, but no, there is no genre. It does not exist, at least not in this space-time continuum. Um, I think, you know, I, I just can't sing. I've got to admit it, I cannot sing. And I'm not, uh, you know, and people said, oh, but if you had lessons and blah, blah, blah. No, no, it's not going to happen. But it just makes me appreciate music that much more, doesn't it? So there you go. So you weren't one of those kids from the black community who was dragged down to church every Sunday and you were there singing the rest of the community? No, I, I went to church. I mean, early on, and we, we had, um, I remember, Sunday school and so on. So I went to church for a few years and I, we had to sing. Doesn't mean I was any good at it. <laughs> you know? so. Okay, so no gospel, no soul, no R&B, no jazz, that kind of, but, but. Have you tried Scandinavian death metal? You know what? Uh, if if I and I, I thought, let me try some rap, and I was useless at that. I have all these musical genres in my heart, but that's where they're going to stay. So there you go. I'm sorry, but I am saddened by your lack of ambition in this quarter. You're an incredible creative, and I'm sorry, but if Louis Theroux can rap, <laughs> you can rap, right? That's all I'm saying, Mallory. No, 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 no. But you know what? That said, you know, what I can do is I can create characters who can sing and I can live vicariously through them. You've never been tempted to ask Stormzy for a few lessons? (laughs) I mean, you know, you know know him very well. You know him very well. I would not waste his time. I think he's an amazing guy. I've just got so much time for him. And I think he's a phenomenal man. So in all power to him. Well, you know, you have massively inspired him. Maybe he'd be insulted that he hasn't inspired you to become a rapper. I mean, I don't know. No, no I don't think so. But look, you, of course, are, are, are very happy to be a writer. And we are very happy that you're a writer and an author. We are very happy indeed. Mallory, as always, it is so good to hang out with you and speak to you. Oh, thank you. It's been my pleasure, Nihal. Thank you. Mallory, thank you so much. It's been a fantastic conversation and I'm so glad you could join us. Thank you for listening wherever you are listening to The Penguin Podcast. If you haven't already, 
don't forget to subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode and you can leave us a review too and help get the word out tell everybody you know and finally if you want to find out more about this podcast or Mallory's enormous body of work head over to penguin.co.uk slash podcasts I'm Nihal Arthanaika and I'll see you next time. Bye.